You tuned in to the Kojo Namdi show on WAMU 88.5. Welcome. It's been a year now since local theaters and concert venues were forced to shut their doors due to the coronavirus pandemic. For some, it's been a year since they've sold a single ticket, and others have had to pivot to virtual performances. Today, we'll explore how live entertainment might come through this, and whether the $15 billion in the recent stimulus package dubbed Save Our Stages will help. Later in the broadcast, we'll be talking about these initiatives in local music. But first, we want to check in with local theaters. Joining me to discuss this is Michaela Lafrac. Michaela is WMU's arts and culture reporter. Michaela, thank you for joining us. Hi, Kojo. Great to be here. Michaela, um, this past year, you've seen up close the effects of the pandemic on our local arts and music scene. How are local artists and venue owners feeling a year into the pandemic? Um, frankly, I think like, like all of us are, they're feeling weary, Kojo. This past year, as you can imagine, has been incredibly difficult on the arts economy. Um, we could start with venues. Venues are relying almost entirely on government grants and loans and private donations and cash reserves, uh, to stay open right now. Um, the ones that own their buildings or have sympathetic landlords are, are obviously in a much better place than venues that have had to pay rent throughout the past year um, without bringing in any revenue from events. And many venues, I, venue owners that I've spoken to have become experts in grant applications and getting their employees on unemployment benefits. Um, and some have closed. You know, there's everywhere from New Street Music Hall to Twins Jazz. Lots of places are shutting down permanently. Um, but at the same time, on the flip side, there's been a lot of really amazing innovation that I've seen. Um, mm-hmm. Two quick examples that come to mind. I spoke to a painter in Hyattsville the other day who's been growing this following on TikTok. Um, she has nearly 60,000 followers now who watch her doing um, home craft projects. And she started making money off that social media following. Um, and then other artists have turned to side gigs. Um, I spoke to a local jazz musician the other day, um, this bass player named Chris Fun. And he says he's been doing web design for the past year. Um, And he says a lot of people he knows might, you know, unfortunately not ever go back to working full-time as musicians. You know, their side gigs will become their full-time gigs. But um, at least for Chris, he says the second DC's jazz venues reopen, he's going to be right back to, to playing bass. Michaela, this week President Biden said that by May, every adult in the country will have access to the coronavirus vaccine. Could decreasing COVID rates and warmer weather mean a reopening for live event spaces, or is it too early to tell? I mean, that's what a lot of of folks are really, really hoping for right now. And I, I do think there is a renewed sense of hope. Um, a big part of that is is not just the vaccines, but the warmer weather finally coming back. Um, venues that have access to outdoor spaces are certainly thinking about ways to host concerts or plays outside. Um, but I think the big fear right now is that that a lot of um, artists and arts organizations haven't received much guidance yet from local governments on what's going to be allowed. So no one wants to make too firm of plans Um There's this group, for example, called the DMV Music Stakeholders. They're musicians and music venue owners, et cetera. Um, And they've been holding these weekly organizing calls for the duration of the pandemic. And their main objective right now, um, you know, in these next couple of weeks is urging local governments in D.C., Maryland and Virginia to put out clear policies and guidelines around live events because these things take 
you know, they take time to plan. Um, and then lastly, in terms of vaccines, I, I know a lot of potential audience members are getting vaccinated, which is great. Um, in terms of prioritization of who's getting the vaccine, um, you know, musicians and performers aren't really at the top of any lists unless they're in an mm. older age group or have pre-existing conditions. So that's something else to keep in mind. Joining us now is Rebecca Madrano, the co-founder and executive director of the Gala Hispanic Theater in Columbia Heights. Rebecca, good to talk to you again. Thank you for joining us. Wonderful to talk to you, Kojo. I'm here because I hear you're never leaving your show. <laughs> That's right. I don't, only for um, only for a part of the show. I'll be here for mm-hmm. another part of the show. Um, for those of our listeners who may not be familiar, Rebecca, tell them a little bit about the Gala Hispanic Theater. Uh, Gala Hispanic Theater has been here 45 years now. We uh, hope to open our 46th season in the fall. And we're located in Columbia Heights. We're the group that took over the old historic Tivoli Theater and made it a permanent home. And um, actually, we were one of the few venues uh, fortunate enough to have that wonderful, magical window of opportunity in November of four weeks of live performances. But as uh, the previous uh, speaker just said, Michaela, that it was took a lot of planning. We actually hit the ground running as soon as we were shuttered in March. Uh, we were fortunate with the timing to receive a capital grant f- through the city for the upgrade of the facility, including, of course, the HVAC, which is key. So we had a whole overhaul. We got MERV-14 filters. We captured 0.3 particles. It turned over the air eight times, which enabled us to get approval from the stage directors and designers union, uh, which I also think helped our situation in terms of the safety for actors, directors, and audiences. So we did have that opportunity, which, um, as I say, was wonderful. We got fantastic feedback. We did COVID tracking. And then, boom, the spike occurred, and we're shut down again um, in November, end of November, which um, shut our flamenco festival down, uh, causing a great loss of revenue to us. That's our big moneymaker, as you know, Kojo. The flamenco is very popular. So we did not do that, and now we're back to planning and doing virtual and and hoping and praying that by our next goal is late April for a show that we've had to cancel three times since last year. We still have the artists, but after that, if we can't open, we lose all of those artists. They have other commitments, and we just can't keep paying them. So I don't know what's going to happen. We are waiting and planning, and meanwhile, continuing to upgrade our safety We had a plexiglass installed. It was interesting, the set design for the show in the fall, the actors were all inside a plexiglass house, which happened to work. It was a 17th century Spanish comedy about class division and Mm -hmm. social tension. And so that's just sort of highlighted that that theme and reinforced it. And they were all performing behind plexiglass. Now what we're doing is creating a sneeze guard, they call it across the whole front of the stage, as well as around our, our bar and lobby area. So well, um, a lot of investments in planning. I am familiar with both your determination and innovation. Joining us now is Molly Smith, the Artistic Director of Arena Stage. Molly, thank you for joining us. Kojo, I just want to say it's an honor to be on your program. I know you will only uh, be doing this for another month or so, but uh, you have been such a brilliant uh, person in this community, really sharing uh, the news of the day 
and the news of the of the future. You you are truly a treasure for us in this city. Thank, thank you. you, thank you very much, Molly. You are like Rebecca, also a treasure in this city. Like many <laughs> theaters, Arena Stage pivoted towards digital programming. Tell us about your current season. Yeah, big time. It is uh, called the Looking Forward season. And uh, we have a number of really fascinating projects that are happening. One is called Indigenous Earth Voices, and this is all with Indigenous artists and storytellers and uh, directors and also uh, composers. It will be a film, and our six writers are speaking to six storytellers that are from different parts of the United States uh, and Canada, from the Cree people to the Lakota people uh, to the Zuni people. And they are interviewing them about their relationship to the earth. And uh, this will be uh, put together in a film with indigenous actors. Uh, and uh, it will have uh, imagery from Western Alaska, because uh, one of the uh, interviewees, Earl Achak, comes from Chivak, Alaska. So you'll see imagery from different parts of the country and from Canada. And it will be stories about uh, subsistence, people's uh, family, people's rituals. And uh, we have 10 different pieces of uh, music that will be uh, woven through uh, the project from uh, composers like Buffy St. Marie, and uh, traditional uh, music coming from the Dakota people as well. And uh, then we are doing something called Dear Jack, Dear Louise, which is a series of these absolutely beautiful love stories. Some audience members may remember seeing it at Arena about a year ago, but we're doing it through the mail. And uh, one of our... Uh, uh, wonderful staff members, who's our casting director and also is our uh, line producer, thought of this idea because she said everybody wants to get letters at home. And so what she and Ken Ludwig, the writer, have done is uh, created a story through a series of nine different letters that will go out to people's um, mailboxes. One day you'll get a letter from Jack and four days later you, later, you will get a letter uh, from Louise. And it all takes place during World War II as these young people fall in love. And it's completely based on Ken Ludwig's parents. And it will also include things like telegrams within the letters or photographs of each one of them. And uh, I think it's really exciting. Um, Sounds and it's like going it. out to people's mailboxes. And the third one I just want to tell you about is called Arena Riffs. And we have uh, commissioned uh, three extraordinary composers to write pieces of music about this moment in time and create films out of them. And I got to uh, tell Bankson. you, those, those three composers, um, Abigail Bengtson and Rona yes. Siddiqui, and Samayin24, I met Samayin24 first when he was an intern at Arena Stage and have followed his <laughs> career, followed his career closely ever since. And, and the pieces are just starting to come in, Kojo, and uh, they're extraordinary. 
Wow, they are really? extraordinary. What people are doing in the middle of the pandemic as artists is incredible. And what you all are doing is incredible. We're going to have to take a short break. We're talking with Rebecca Madrano, co-founder of the Gala Hispanic Theater in Columbia Heights, Molly Smith, the artistic director of Arena Stage, and Michaela Lafrac, WAMU's arts and culture reporter. I'm Ojo Nandi. Hi, it's Diane. The next meeting of my book club is on Wednesday, May 31st at 1 p.m. Eastern. I'll host a discussion of Mad Honey by Jody Pico and Jennifer Finney Boylan, followed by a conversation with the authors. Find out more and register at dianereem.org slash book club. Welcome back. We're talking about live events a year into the pandemic and what's happening with theaters and music venues. This time I'd like to start with Kathy in Foggy Bottom. Kathy, you're on the air. Go ahead, please. Thanks. I A few months ago, I participated virtually in a Synetic Theater performance, so I was an audience member. And with your paid ticket, you got in the mail a bunch of props that were wrapped in brown paper. And during the performance, they would say, now unwrap prop number one. Or, now unwrap <laughs> prop number two. So they really involved the audience. It was so fun. Of course, those people are so creative at Synetic. So like the first prop, I think, was a pair of white gloves, and they taught us a little bit how to be like a mime. Uh, one of the props was a red balloon, and at one point we all had to blow up our balloons and let them go in the air. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm really glad you had that experience, Kathy. But Kathy mentioned tickets, Rebecca Madrano. How much of your revenue is dependent on ticket sales, and how would you say that compares to other theaters? Well, it, it's a culturally specific theater, Spanish language. We don't. We are not highly reliant on ticket sales. We, we have not been, unfortunately. Um, however, losing any amount of earned revenue hurts us because that's the unrestricted funds, Kojo. As you know, a lot of the grants are restricted either for capital or for our educational purpose, which we're absolutely grateful for because it enabled us you know, to keep our Paso Nuevo program that serves Latinx, low-income immigrant, and black youth in the city year-round. The interesting thing, we did pivot with Paso Nuevo um, in March and April, and we discovered that a lot of these kids were sneaking out instead of Zooming, going to the Zoom classes, they were sneaking out to be together to Zoom. So at that point, we implemented a hybrid program where six to eight of them would come in in, in, in shifts with, with two teachers, so there were never more than 10 people, and that's worked beautifully. We're still doing that uh, with about 75% of, percent of them still doing okay. it online, and they managed to do an amazing podcast that have mm -hmm. gone as far as Pakistan, Great Britain, Colombia, Venezuela, in Spanish, because there is a real scarcity of, first of all, podcast and, in general, online material in Spanish, which we're discovering as we have pivoted the youth programs and the Galita programs, which actually reached about 20,000 kids with artists that we paid to read books, illustrated Spanish language books Glenn. online. We had... No idea that there was that much need for that. So we're doing that, but it does not replace, of course, the ticket revenue. We are fortunate that we have the contributed income. Uh, but as I said, we don't make, you know, we don't yeah. sell products. We don't, we don't charge for our classes. They're all right. free. Mm -hmm. So we do Mo 
Molly Smith, um, when you talk about actors, a lot of people are employed in the theater world. What has the pandemic meant for the actors, stagehands, and technical staff? It's been absolutely devastating. You know, the city of Washington, D.C., 150,000 people work in the arts. That's a $10 billion arts industry, which is, I think it's over 8% of the city's economy. So artists, actors, uh, technicians, uh, we had to furlough 70% of our staff because we're not performing Uh, unlike Gala, we are dependent on uh, tickets. And so um, we had a loss of about $14 million last year in a one-year period of time because 70 to 75% of the funding for Arena Stage comes through earned income, uh, not contributed, although contributed is very important too. But what's so horrible in terms of what is happening, Kojo, is so many people are talking about leaving the field of the arts. And we need the arts because the arts are about imagination. And uh, people are moving into other professions. They are feeling uh, hopeless. And um, it's a really, really awful situation. Michaela Lefrak, the 15 billion dollars in the most recent stimulus package known as the Save Our Stages Act is giving some hope to local independent venue owners. Tell us briefly about this bill, which now that it's approved, is named the Shuttered Venue Operators Grant. Yes, a little bit less catchy, that new name, I would say personally. <laughs> um, yes, so this, this bill was signed into law at the very end of December as part of Congress's COVID relief package. And as you said, it's this massive $15 billion aid package that's aimed at supporting everything from theaters and performing arts centers to independent cinemas to nonprofit museums, even some zoos. Um, and it really is this this huge show of support for the country's arts and culture economy um, and also a testament to how the arts community has organized itself over the past year and, and really become a lobbying force in a way that, you know, I, w- I wasn't seeing before the pandemic. Um, the issue is that the you know it's federal it's federal funding and and when you put the word federal in front of anything you know that there's going to be a bit of a of a delay. Um, a lot of these businesses, um, these venues that that are counting on these funds, are still waiting for the disbursement process, um, the application process, even to start. Um, so the clock is ticking for them to to get this money that they're really going to rely on. Rebecca, do we know what types of theaters and what expenses qualify for the stimulus funding? Is the legislation clear? I don't think it is, Kojo. I've talked to fellow uh, theater uh, owners and directors in the field, and the sense I'm getting is that um, it's too the, the the qualifications are too unclear. We were competing against uh, for-profit businesses. It was originally designed for for-profit. And there's a sense that um, if you have to choose between the PPP and this, uh, people are going, I think, maybe it's 50-50, 50% 50 are going to the PPP because it's a known entity and and people were successful. We were able, for example, to keep our staff on only because we got a PPP over the summer. We were able to keep our, we have a smaller staff, of course, than arenas, but we were, were able to because of that. So... I think there's still questions in people mi- people's minds about the timing, how it will be dispersed, and what the qualifications are. How about you, Molly Smith? How do you regard this legislation? 
Well, I think the legislation is a brilliant piece of legislation and exactly right. Uh, the arts have really kicked into a big lobbying force. It Part of what the Shuttered Venues Act has is you're able to receive or apply for 45% of your lost income in the first year. And there's a $3 billion set aside for not-for-profits um, because uh, the for-profit entities, of course, could uh, would, would be able to apply for the money as well and um, may end up taking the majority of the money. And so the not-for-profits uh, form together to get this $3 billion set aside for organizations like Gala and Arena and Woolly and all the theaters uh, that you think of in the Washington, D.C. area, all the way over to places like Signature or Ford's Theater, will be able to apply. But uh, you're absolutely right. The uh, portal has not yet opened yet. So even though we have a lot of uh, information, they aren't ready yet to accept applications. Here is Dale in Bethesda, Maryland. Dale, your turn. Thank you, Kojo. Um, my first time on the air, I'm really sorry to hear that you're, you're going off in a month. Anyway, um, I was ushering for about seven local theaters. I really, really miss the sensory experience of live theater, uh, although I have tried to go online. I, I want to highlight, like the first speaker, a very imaginative approach that Warshock Theater has taken, where every month one gets a box, and the box contains and one instructions, which include going to an obscure place in D.C., and then there are letters from various characters, and you don't understand them at first, and some photos, and maybe a little trinket. And um, I'm now on my fourth box. I've discovered parts of D.C. I, I never knew existed that are fascinating. <laughs> <laughs> and um, and we're trying to put the pieces together. It's called Distant Frequencies, which I think is because Alexander Graham Bell's building is involved, which I didn't know was in D.C. <laughs> Got to interrupt so, you because we only have about a minute left. Michaela, do you have any idea when district regulations could allow for indoor performing arts? What does the time like look like now? Well, honestly, we, we, we really don't right now. Um, in D.C., Mayor Bowser shut down live indoor events during the winter as COVID cases spiked. Um, the city had also started a live entertainment pilot at six venues, um, but that was also put on hold. Um, outside of the district, there are some live indoor arts events going on. The Birchmere, for example, has been hosting concerts with limited capacity, okay. and I imagine that that's going to increase as more people get vaccinated. Michaela Lefrac, thank you for joining us. Rebecca Madrano and Molly Smith, thank you for joining us and for everything that you do for this community. We're going to take a short break. When we come back, we'll talk about music venues. I'm Kojo Nang. Welcome back. As we mentioned in the previous segment, live arts and music venues recently got promising news. Congress passed the Save Our Stages Act as part of the end-of-year federal relief package. Once passed, this bill became the Shuttered Venue Operators Grant, which will, allow, which will allocate $15 billion in grant money to independent arts and culture venues nationwide, more than ever in history. But 
Some are concerned about the time it's taking to distribute the funding and what that delay will mean for music venues trying to stay afloat a year into the pandemic. Joining us now is Audrey Fick-Schaefer, board member and head of communications for the National Independent Venue Association, also known as NEVA. She's also the communications director of IMP, which owns the Anthem, Lincoln Theatre, Merriweather Post Pavilion, and the 930 Club. Audrey, thank you so much for joining us. Oh, my goodness. Kojo, thank you for putting a spotlight on this. And I have to join the other uh, guests here to say that we took a vote. It's 700000 to zero. We want you to stay. <laughs> well, I must admit now that I'm leaving the daily broadcast that... You know, Seth Hurwitz is a friend of mine, so I'll continue to be in touch with you guys. So, um, I, but Audrey, I hope so. But Audrey, tell us about Save Our Stages and the National Independent Venue Association. Well, uh, the National Independent Venue Association didn't exist before the pandemic. But when we were shut down, our last show was March 11th, as a matter of fact, at uh, the 930 Club. So it's 358 days since we've had any type of revenue, but um, we joined with other independent venues across the country for the very first time to form this organization because we realized that there's absolutely no way for small businesses like ours to exist with no revenue and the enormous overhead that we have, and that is universal. And we also realized that the only way for us to uh, get to the other end and to once again become the economic drivers of our communities, in addition to being the arts centers, is to uh, get federal relief and emergency relief. So we came together, we fought really hard, we did the unthinkable and got the Save Our Stages Act passed. And as you pointed out, it's got a new name and it's $15 billion. But although it was signed into law December 27th, the Small Business Administration still has not issued rules, regulations, or application forms. And we understand that it's got to be a very difficult and complicated process to launch a grant program like this. Um, So we want them to get it right, as I'm sure they do too, but there's also the expediency that uh, is, is devastating and it is dire. And hundreds of members of NEVA have gone under as we've waited for this relief. And it's been assigned to us. It just, they, we are waiting for the application forms. And uh, in the meantime, it's, uh, you can only imagine the, the loss for businesses like U Street Music Hall and Twins and 18th Street Lounge. Uh, but, you know, jazz is being especially hard hit here in DC and across the nation. And it, it, those are places that uh, it, the precious art forms that were created in the U.S. and nobody gets into this business to become rich. You get into this business because you love the music, you love to watch people enjoy it, and then you really work hard and struggle to be able to uh, make ends meet and hopefully do well and expose people to new artists. But uh, we're, we're, we really need the help now. Yes, indeed. You want the Small Business Administration's Office of Disaster Assistance to get it right, but you want them to get it right soon. Joining us is John Weiss, the head talent buyer for Union Stage in D.C. and Jammin' Java in Vienna, Virginia. John, thank you for joining us. Yeah, Kojo, thank you so much for having me. I've, I've been a fan uh, since, since basically I've grown up in D.C. to you. 
Oh, so you, I've known you since you were, or you've known me since you were a child, huh? Yes. <laughs> John, like other local live music venues, Union Stays and Jam in Java could benefit from the $15 billion in stimulus funding allocated for live entertainment. Do you know if you're eligible and how much grant money you might be able to apply for? Well, I know we're definitely aiming to try to get the full um, 45% of, you know, the, the maximum amount of the gross revenue that we made in 2019. Um, I believe we qualify because the, the major source of income for us is ticket sales. But um, as Audrey mentioned, um, th there hasn't been much information about when the money will come through, when we can actually apply and just basic communication on it. I mean, we were waiting for this to happen for so long and working so hard to make it happen, um, largely in part to, to Neva and Audrey's work. But, you know, it, it just it would be great to have some sort of communication. I mean, the, the, the fact that it passed in late December was a milestone and, and, you know, helped us get a breath of fresh air. But there hasn't been much communication since then, and it's worrisome, and we're still losing independent music venues every day. Tell us about your operations this far. How have you been making ends meet this past year? Yeah, so um, I've been one of the lucky ones that's, that's still on the team. I mean, we, you know, we had to furlough 90% of our staff. Uh, one thing that we did at Union Stage was introduce a live streaming setup so we could still host you know, streaming concerts um, through a, a multi-cam setup. Um, at Jam and Java, we pivoted to have outdoor concerts in the parking lot when the weather's nice. So we did that starting in June, um, you know, obviously socially distanced with people wearing masks and you know, being smart and, um, you know, six feet apart and making sure that bands are comfortable and that there's only one band performing, so no one's sharing equipment and that sort of thing. Um, but, you know, it's, it's been very difficult. I mean, there, there's no comparison to going to a concert and being in the front row or, you know, seeing, seeing something live and feeling that sense of community. I mean, that's something that I think is, is the best part about this job is, is, is all the work coming down to actually seeing the concert occur. And um, although you can still host streaming concerts and be able to have bands perform, you're still watching it from a screen. And the, the effect just isn't as powerful. I mean, it, it's still great to have something. And, um, you know, I, I watched the stream at Union Stage last, last weekend. That was a Story District, which is like a storytelling um, sort of show. And, and it was amazing. It was great to have something to watch on a Saturday night. But it just it doesn't quite compare to, you know, being at a concert. Um, and, yeah, it's been very difficult. It's been very hard. Um, for me and, and for, you know, my friends and, and colleagues who no longer have work right now um, and potential loss of careers that, you know, there's a big question mark about what concerts are going to look like um, in a post-pandemic world. Audrey, what were some of the difficult staffing decisions your team had to make at IMP venues? Oh, my God. It, it just absolutely crushing. Um, when you're not permitted to put on shows and you're not allowed to have people in the venue, we couldn't even assign them other work to do, like painting or any type of mechanical changes that we would uh, normally not be able to do because we had shows going on, but we still couldn't bring people in because of the state of emergency. So um, <clears throat> we have about 97% of our employees have been furloughed, which is heart-wrenching. Uh, one of the things that we did immediately is to start what's called the IMP Family Fund, and it's a 501c3 that if people make donations to that, it, it becomes a grant fund for our uh, employees that are furloughed. We have uh, we started off by uh, matching a um, 
a gift card program with that. And that has been uh, just so wonderful to see how the, the community has wanted to help. And it's not like our employees have other jobs they can get right now because there is no other music venue or other bar or restaurant. And it's not like you can go to a different region of the country to get a job in that field either because it's all closed. So the other thing that we've done, <clears throat> excuse me, is to fight really hard for unemployment assistance that, <clears throat> pardon me, to be extended. Um, so while we were fighting for NEVA, we were looking to also have unemployment extended in the pandemic unemployment assistance. Um, and then we, the other thing that we do for our employees is we have a, uh, a food pantry every two weeks, but it, uh, it, and we also, uh, my boss is really very generous and is paying for everybody's health care, um, uh, all, all of it, it, for furloughed employees, because we want them back. We wish that, um, that health care was not tied to unemployment like so, so many others. So we wanted to make sure that they did not lose that kind of care, especially in a pandemic. Here now is Ed in Rockville, Maryland. Ed, you're on the air. Go ahead, please. Thank you for your call, Kojo, and uh, thanks for this opportunity to speak on, on this important topic. And I wanted to uh, uh, mention that uh, as president of the Federation of, of Musicians in Washington, D.C., the Musicians Union, this pandemic has absolutely devastated the music community here. Uh, people have been out of work for over a year now, uh, no opportunities whatsoever uh, to perform live. And that situation has been uh, a precarious one for many years. But this uh, venue relief legislation, which has passed, there is no guarantee in that any of that money will go to those musicians who populate the stages, who actually bring those stages to life. And I just want to point that out because uh, as, as the discussions happened, uh, through the summer, as this uh, the support for this legislation was going forward, many musicians were contacted by independent venue owners and others asking for their support. And I think it's important to to know that the musicians did many musicians did sign on. In the conversations I had with them, I I, I wanted to ask them where is the support. Uh, what are you going to get from any owners in, turn, in return for the support that you're offering here? And I say that because over the years, my experience has been, there have been, uh, <laughs> I've heard many complaints about treatment of musicians by venue owners in, in the D.C. area, and basically it's the lack of a fair wage. And I think now is a time to understand that uh, our musicians need help going forward, Okay. Uh, they need to have a living wage paid for them. They do not have access to unemployment benefits because these were mostly under the table jobs. They weren't being, they weren't having taxes, employers' tax obligations paid, or that's unemployment that's contributions made. Right. So in, the in, in the interest of time, I have to ask uh, for a response to this, John Weiss. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's very difficult for everyone, I think, um, especially the musicians. I mean, everyone here is just trying to survive in an industry that's been hurt extremely hard. I mean, you, you know, you, you think about restaurants and bars that are still able to offer takeout, but people aren't exactly going to music venues to, to you know, to get dinner. I mean, it's not really why you go there. And, it, you know, our, our venues can't really succeed with that sort of alternative income. I mean, you, you can pivot to do things to you know, have streaming shows or, or have outdoor events at a limited capacity. Um, but there's only so much you can do. And it's kind of just a struggle, 
you know, for survival for all of us, um, for, for the musicians who are out of work, for the gig workers who are out of work, for the venues that are shut down. Here now is Anthony in Annandale, Virginia. Anthony, you're on the air. Go ahead, please. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so a few things that I think are actually not being addressed as much, uh, unless you're in the younger age category, is live streaming on major platforms um, and DMCA. So, for example, Metallica at BlizzCon, they were streaming that to Twitch, and Twitch actually played other music on top of it because of the threat for DMCA. So I think that's something for independent artists that are signed to small indie labels is something that's really struggling for them. Thank you very much for your call. Um, Audrey, um, they, while live music venues await federal grants, we talked about the emergency relief fund that the National Independent Venue Association... Cre- no, we have not. We only talked about what IMP is doing. Can you tell us about the emergency relief fund that the National Independent Venue Association has created? How is that money raised, and how has it been distributed? Yes, um, thank you for asking. Well, we were a couple months into the lobbying, and got the bill written, but then was realized, we were realizing that this is taking longer to get passed because of Congress not being able to agree with each other on everything else having to do with COVID relief. As you know, it didn't get passed till December, but right. venues were starting to go under. So we thought we've got to work on two tracks, and we started the Emergency Relief Fund. We've been able to raise $3 million and distributed it to more than 150 venues across the country that were at the greatest risk of going under while they waited for the federal relief because that's what's going to be required. And uh, while that sounds like a lot for a a brand new organization to raise that much, the need was so much greater that we got applications for $14 million worth of help. So we're still continuing to try to raise funds. One of the the first um, big boosts for it was we did um, a and through with YouTube, the Save Our Stages Festival, which was a three-day live streaming fundraiser where we had 35 major acts in 25 venues to raise money. Um, and But if people want to support their local venue, they can either uh, go directly to that venue to buy merchandise or see if they have a fundraiser or a GoFundMe or go to Neva's website, the uh, saveourstages.com, and you can see how you can donate to the Emergency Relief Fund. And is there anything that venues can do for musicians outside of employing them? I, I could say, you know, at this point, it, it, the, the pain is so extreme in every single direction. Hmm. These venues are getting evicting, eviction notices, and... They're getting electricity cut off, and their insurance is getting pulled, and their licenses aren't getting paid. So they're fighting for their survival. We, of course, we want the artist to be able to be able to come back to us when it's safe to reopen, which means that we're going to have to be able to reopen, and we're going to want them to still want to be artists. But that was why I was saying also that we were working really hard with Neva while the the COVID relief package was being considered, the last one and now this one too, is to extend unemployment and to get uh, those people who uh, get W-9s and W-4s to be able to 
get funding because they can now. And uh, I, I don't know about other organizations, but um, everything, you know, we're, every, our T's are crossed and our I's are dotted. And every, every time we um, have an artist come through, there's a record of it so they can submit for unemployment. Yeah, you know, um, when we talk about the $15 billion allocated in the shuttered venue operations grant, there's been reports about how historic this is, that it's the largest federal backing of arts and culture in the nation's history. Audrey, how did the grant manage to get so much bipartisan support? <clears throat> because we took the time to explain our industry to them in a way that they've never had to know before. And it came to not necessarily couching ourselves as in the arts, but as small businesses. And we're in so many communities across the country. And we are the drivers of economic activity for the area business around us. So there was a study that showed for every dollar spent at a small music venue on a ticket, $12 of economic activity resulted for area businesses. And that's something that is neither blue or red, it's green. And every legislator got the fact that, oh, if I want economic activity to come back to my community when it is safe for everybody to be open, I'm going to have to make sure that that driver of foot traffic and um, renewal is still there. So it was about being small businesses, not, Mm -hmm. not necessarily about being the arts. Here is Sid on Capitol Hill. Sid, your turn. Hi, Kojo. Thanks for taking my call. Um, you were talking about before um, anything positive, so I thought <laughs> I would inject a small um, amount of positive news. Um, I live um, near Lincoln Park on Capitol Hill, and there has um, been informal um, Jazz in the Park sessions uh, that just started up a couple weeks ago. Um, it's around Wednesdays from 3 to 5 and Saturdays from 1 to 3 p.m. And um, so yesterday, um, a bunch of neighbors and people saw Elijah Jamal Falbed, his group, um, performing there. And um, so it was just a nice way to get together with the neighbors and, you know, people walking their dogs and bringing their kids to the park and get to see each other. Is it it something that's going on every Wednesday? Um, it's just, it's informal and, um, it's, you know, I thought maybe it was affiliated with the Capitol Hill Jazz Foundation, but it's not. But the um, Capitol Hill Jazz Foundation is also, um, doing its part. They're affiliated with Mr. Henry's, um, a long time jazz venue on Capitol Hill on Pennsylvania Avenue. And so, um, they're offering small grants and creating opportunities for, um, musicians to play, and they're advocating to the D.C. Council and Congress um, okay. to invest in venues. So, um, but in the meantime, come to the park. And yes. I understand they're going to go to different parts around the city, too. So, Okay, good. Thank you very much for sharing that with us, Sid. Here now is Brad in Mount Pleasant. Brad, you're on the air. Go ahead, please. Thanks very much. Uh, we in Mount Pleasant have also been blessed by Porch Concert. Concerts, um that Frank Angbro has been having uh, Wednesday evenings and Saturdays, so folks should come by Kilbourne Place. But I, I was calling to ask um, 
then he's maybe to look ahead a little bit. Um, my last show was at Union Stage on March 11th of last year, Sudan Archives. Um, and, you know, thinking about what bands might actually come through in this new world, we are blessed to have an amazing, you know, uh, scene in, in D.C. and the region. And so, you know, six to 12 months of concerts of local bands would be more than welcome. But curious, it's hard to imagine a band in California or even, you know, Ohio, you know, getting on the road for a six-month tour, you know, in the next year. And I'm curious what the venues are, are hearing in terms of, you know, what acts might actually be on the bills once the doors are open again. I'll ask both John and Audrey to respond. First you, John. Yeah, I mean, that's, that's a great question. You know, it, it's the same kind of issue that we had with the pilot program where you can't just snap your fingers and have artists ready to perform the next week. I mean, you have to put shows together in advance. You have to make sure that there's time to promote it. You have to make sure that there's time to schedule staff for it. So, um, I, I, you know, I hope that um, once we are able to open that, we're, we'll be hosting as many local artists as, 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 you know, as many as possible and that people will be eager to go to concerts again. But I think it's, I don't think it's going to be that simple. I think it's going to be kind of a slow moving process and, um, that, you know, we'll, we'll have a, a small capacity at first that will open up and some artists will be excited to just be able to perform and some artists will be more skeptical. Um, you know, it, it's a big question mark and, and it's something that we hope we'll have more insight into soon and hopefully things will, will come together um, safely and smoothly. But um, yeah, it's tough. And also with, you know, with Union Stage and also with 930 Club and Anthem, I mean, these these are national venues. So a lot of the artists that do come through are, are on, like you said, large tours where they'll play New York and then they'll play D.C. and then they'll hit Philly or North Carolina. They can't just come to D.C. just for one show. So there's, there's you know, a question mark and also a lot of anxiety building about around that, at least for me, where it's like, hey, you know, if we are able to host, host concerts next month, what, what's that, you know, who's going to be able to play and what's that, what's that going to look like? Um, so, yeah, Same. it's, it's a... It's a yeah. It's a great. It's a great question. And um, same, yeah. same question to you, Audrey. We only have about a minute and a half left. Yeah, we're going to need a national reopening for our tours to be able to come through. And when I say national, I mean it's got to be pretty much full capacity all over the country. Otherwise, it, it's not going to happen. And it, for our venues, because we rely on national tours, and that could take three to five months to plan once we've gotten the go-ahead because of uh, having to advertise tickets, having the, all the intricacies of, say, having 3,000 bands, say, on your market set, go plan a tour. And, um, but you know, the, the one really bright spot we have in the last couple of weeks is more vaccines are coming, and that is what we need is vaccines in everybody's arms, and that will be crucial. Indeed, the recent announcement is that all adults in the U.S. will have access to the coronavirus vaccine by May. That coming out of the Biden administration. We'll have to see what happens. Audrey Fix Schaefer, thank you so much for joining us. Oh, thank you, Kojo. Miss you already. John Weiss, thank you for joining us. Thanks so much, Kojo. It's been a pleasure. Today's show on the local art scene, A Year Into the Pandemic, was produced by Ines Renike. Coming up Friday on the Politics Hour, we get the latest on the vaccine rollout in Anne Arundel County from County Executive Stuart Pittman and an update on his push for more progressive taxation in the state. Then D.C. Council Member Vincent Gray talks about how the pandemic has affected Ward 7, gun violence in the district, and prospects for a hospital east of the Anacostia River. That all starts tomorrow at noon. Until then, thank you 
you for listening and stay safe. I'm Kojo Namdi. The Kojo Namdi Show is produced by Julie Deppenbrock, Sydney Granin, Lauren Marco, Kurt Gardiner, Richard Cunningham, and Ines Renike. Our managing producer is Ingalisa Schropstor. Our broadcast engineer is Rashad Young. Today's engineer is Kenny Pirot. For past shows and more content, visit kojoshow.org. Thanks for listening to the Kojo Namdi Show. And if you're already a member of WAMU 88.5, thank you for your support. If not, it's easy to give online at wamu.org. Just click the donate button and thanks.